the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right, they checked my ID at the door, let me in anyway, but confirmed it's me. So, okay, here we are. Another edition of Lifeline unfolding before your shell-like ears for this Wednesday. And great to have you with us on the, the Hump Day edition of Lifeline. We've got a lot to unpack in today's program. A little bit later on, as much as we've heard some pretty harrowing and frightening stories coming out of Ukraine and the ongoing Russian attack, unprovoked, I might add, on the Ukrainian people. A, um, a New York Times bestselling writer who coincidentally has an adopted son from Ukraine traveled there and has documented many of the tales of not only pain, but heroism as well. And I think you'll be encouraged. It, it looks at this topic from a unique perspective in so much as it provides many first-hand accounts of God's intervention and presence amid the war in Ukraine. Best-selling author Kyle Duncan joins us later on in tonight's program. Also, Professor John Schwartzberg, who is the chair of the editorial board for UC Berkeley Health and Wellness Publications and is Professor Emeriti Academy of the Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology, will give us an update from COVID to monkeypox to polio. What's going on with health care in America? We'll get to that topic a little bit later on in this first hour, but I want to lead off with um, the great giveaway and the great takeaway. By that, I mean you've no doubt heard much ballyhoo related to the Inflation Reduction Act, and it, while it purports to spread some money around, well, spreading some things around, um, <laughs> part of it, though, seems to be, once again, Washington, D.C., engaging in large-scale redistribution of wealth, while this promises to do everything from reduce inflation to provide more health care dollars um, and even streamline the IRS for increased audits. Aren't we all looking forward to that? At the end of the day, I guess Washington, D.C. has never really earned, learned from our various experiences in times of severe inflation, recession, to even Great Depression, that largely there's not a lot that government can do to help private enterprise in these moments. Now, easing off on some policies that uh, reduce restrictions and allow for greater freedom in trade, that's, that's certainly uh, helpful. But if they think they can wave a magic wand and make inflation go away, they're in for a big surprise. And you, perhaps, will be in for a big surprise when you see what it does to your pocketbook, not only in terms of what will likely do nothing to stave off inflation and may even exacerbate it 
out further, but moreover, help to further, uh, how should we say, put your wallet on a diet by increasing taxes. And if you believe the government assertion that it's only for folks earning over $400,000 a year, then I will say to you that that, uh, that tax deduction or not increasing your taxes is about as true as the last big tax deduction out of Washington, D.C., that certainly benefited corporations. But for most middle-class Americans, yeah, we also tax increases, even under the Trump tax, quote-unquote, decrease. Let's find out more. Carson Steelman joins us, press secretary with Heritage Action. And uh, Carson, you know, once again, demonstrative of the notion that I guess they feel like it needs to look as if they're doing something back in Washington, D.C., even if in the end it does little to really accomplish anything of value. Tell us a bit about your insights related to the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. So uh, this Inflation Reduction Act, it all started back uh, a little over a year ago now with uh, the Democrats build back better agenda. Uh, and then over, you know, the following months, they uh, had several different iterations of it, uh, trying to figure out a way to make deals within their own party. Uh, and now with, between we had an agreement between Schumer and Manchin. And now we've come to this Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, so this has been in the works for a while. This is not in, uh, you know, in response to the inflation and the economic crisis that the Biden administration and the Democrats have created. Uh, even if they try to spin it that way, uh, this is not an Inflation Reduction Act. It really is an inflation, uh, in, like it, it's an increase of inflation. Um, so we're going to see all of our prices continue to go up. All the uh, spending in this bill is front loaded. Uh, so that means the deficit is actually going to go up. So uh, no matter how they try and spin this, this is just another attempt for the Democrats to try to finance their Green New Deal agenda with your taxpayer money. Yeah, it does seem to be a little bit of a revamp, as you suggest. Uh, there are many elements of this that seem to be strangely familiar related to the so-called Build Back Better bill. And yet here, I guess they thought, well, if we just change the name and uh, put it on a bit of a diet, it will surely um, pass muster. There's a number of things that it's promising to do, um, extending the Obamacare subsidies, uh, which, you know, certainly for the sake of those that are on a limited income and are hurting badly from high inflation, especially in states like California, uh, that that certainly has a positive side to it. Um, going through, though, and effectively, what, almost five times over, I think I read, increase the budget provided to the IRS um, when it comes to audits. Uh, that, that's got to feel big brother-like. I mean, I, I guess the effort to try and want to go out there and catch the tax cheaters is one thing. But, you know, sadly, oftentimes, middle-class Americans uh, that are doing nothing wrong get caught up in, in those so-called um, audits. And so in the end, it, it tends, to, uh, tends to just produce an awful lot of pain. Right. And that's that's one provision of the bill um, related to the IRS that we've been hearing from our activists around the country. Heritage Action has about two million activists in all 50 states. So this is one of their top concerns in the bill. They look at this, they see that this bill is going to expand the IRS budget six times what it should be, or not even what it should be, what it is now. It should be lower than what it is now, probably. Uh, but that is going to include adding 87,000 new agents. And the White House press secretary told us the other day that none of these audits were going to be targeting those making less than $200,000 a year. But 
you have 87,000 new agents. That's not even possible. Of course, these audits and enforcement mechanisms are going to be targeting middle and low co- lower income workers. So you can't even take them seriously when they when they tell us these things. Uh, they they lie about whatever it is they think will make themselves look better. They've lied about the term recession. They've now even lied about the term inflation. With inflation numbers today coming out, uh, they tried to say that even 8.5% for July was actually 0% inflation. So no matter how they try to talk about this or or promise us that uh, the middle class is not going to be targeted, that's just not true. And it's especially concerning giving the news that came out this week about uh, Mar-a-Lago being raided by the FBI. They're taking these government agencies and they're weaponizing them to attack their ideological opponents and to attack the middle class. Well, I, I don't know that I would necessarily connect the two together. I, I, I think they're, they're, they're quite distinct. But that said, I want to zero in on what you just said in relationship to attacking the middle class. We were told as this bill was making its way through, and we've heard it cited by multiple sources within the Senate, the House, and even out of the White House, uh, that not to worry, provisions of this bill would have no tax implications for people that earn under $400,000. And all I can say is, you know, m- much as I referred to earlier, the, the, the last big tax break that promised great rewards for middle-class taxpayers that ultimately did very scant little to deliver on that promise, uh, this also shows the Pinocchio-esque style of Washington, D.C. I looked at a report out of the Congressional Budget Office. These are folks that simply provide analysis. It's nonpartisan. It's neither Democrat nor Republican. They just look at the hard numbers. And here's what I found out, that in spite of the guarantees that no one earning $400,000 a year or below would be paying any more in income taxes, not true. In fact, for earners of between 75000 and 400 k and if you're in the Bay Area, you're earning $75,000 a year, that, 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 that's almost on the cusp of barely surviving, you're going to see anywhere between 09 to 1.5% increase in your income taxes. And while some folks will say, well, Craig, my goodness, that's less than 1% to barely a percentile and a half. Is it that big of a deal? Well... Given the way people are suffering economically right now with runaway inflation, yeah, that's a big deal. Moreover, when you go public and say, we will not increase taxes on middle-class Americans, and then you turn right around, lie through your teeth and do it, you know, this Congress needs to be held accountable like the past last Congress that pulled the same stunt, only, you know, different place, different time. It, it just it, it is shocking to me, Carson, that these bills are put forward, as in this case, as a means of helping suffering Americans deal with the pain of inflation. And in fact, all they ultimately end up doing is either delaying the recovery from the inflation or piling on more burden on American taxpayers and families. Bill is going to increase and worsen inflation. And the rhetoric that's coming out of the left saying that, uh, you know, 1% of taxes for lower and middle class earners is no big deal kind of reminds me of what Nancy Pelosi said about crumbs. Uh, you know, these, these dollars matter to American families who are struggling to put food on the table to fill up their gas tanks. 
to to buy their first home. And that's all because of the economic crisis that the Biden administration and the Democrats have created by their out-of-control spending and their failure to address the national debt. So they've created this problem. Now they're masking this bill, which is going to worsen the problem, as a solution. The American people don't buy it. We see what it costs to uh, fill up our tank when we're at the gas station. We know that that's because of Biden and the Democrats. And the best they can do is say they know how much a tank it got or a gallon gas costs is because they saw it on a billboard. So they're clearly out of touch. They clearly think the American people aren't stupid or aren't paying attention. And we're going to show that that's absolutely not true come November. Carson Steelman, Press Secretary with Heritage Action. Carson, we appreciate you spending some time with us tonight. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a, a problematic issue to be sure. And you know, I, people need to be mindful too that this is this is a shell game that's been played for years and years and years. She mentioned the issue of the federal deficit. Oh my goodness. You know, I remember back at the point at which Ronald Reagan was in office and it crept up to $4 trillion and we thought, my, 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 how will we ever be able to address this? And the fact of the matter is both parties, either through out-of-control giveaway entitlement spending or through out-of-control, let's have another war entitlement spending, has managed to eke up this federal deficit to what's apparently at this juncture the point of no return. And, and, and sadly, there is no interest, and we need to tell the truth here. This is not a Democrat issue. It's not a Republican issue. They're both responsible. And frankly, not only is the the legislative branch guilty here, but so is the executive branch that has allowed this to continue and get so far out of control that we tax and spend, borrow and spend and spend and spend and spend. And we've reached the point now where the federal deficit is so far out of control in excess of $30 trillion. And of course, every time they raise interest rates, guess what? It adds to the amount of money that we taxpayers subsequently owe, based on the total, utter, complete unwillingness and inability of both Democrats and Republicans to deal with deficit spending. Both, on that point, there's plenty of guilt to go around, and no no party can, with any degree of honesty, point at the other and say, it's all your fault. Oh, no. These guys are all in it together, and sadly, the ones that are ultimately going to suffer won't be any former member or current member of Congress or any former or current occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. No. If you want to know who's going to uh, be the one that will ultimately pay the price and suffer, if you're driving right now, just uh, just mildly lean over to your right and look up. Yeah, that face staring back in you, at you in the rearview mirror, that'll be the guy paying. Very sad. Carson Steelman with Heritage Action online at heritageaction.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, it almost seems as if we've been sort of hammered here on a consistent basis over the last couple of years in terms of infectious diseases. Uh, first, of course, COVID that's impacted the lives of all of us, not only here in the United States, but certainly globally. Then more recently, we began to hear about something called monkeypox, a distant relative apparently of the, the smallpox family. And now... Now we're talking about the potential resurgence, at least amongst those who are unvaccinated, of polio, something that we thought here in America we had wiped out 
my goodness, the better part of 30 or 40 years ago. Get some insights now on um, the spread, particularly of monkeypox. We are joined by Professor John Schwartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus from UC Berkeley, Professor Emeriti Academy of the School of Public Health, Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology, and Chair of the Editorial Board, UC Berkeley Health and Wellness Publications. And Professor Schwartzberg, we sure appreciate you carving out some time for us this afternoon. Give us a bit of an update first. Uh, you know, initially when the first early onset reports of monkeypox were hitting the news it seemed as if well it was more for people that had traveled recently to africa or those that were having um, you know intimate one-on-one physical contact with somebody who'd been exposed but now i'm reading that um, this is becoming a concern in larger metropolitan areas like new york city like san francisco give us some insights as to what exactly this member of the smallpox family is doing and why seemingly it's at least from the the public's viewpoint appears to just sort of popped up out of nowhere good afternoon and thank you for inviting me to join you We first found this virus in monkeys in 1958, so a long time ago. We first started seeing cases in Central and Western Africa about a decade or so later. And they've been scattered, but they've been growing in number in Central and Western Africa. In 2003, there was the importation of monkeypox with um, some rodents that were came to the United States, were imported here from Africa, and they infected some prairie dogs, and the prairie dogs infected um, somewhere around 70 people in the United States. So we had our first outbreak then. But that died off very quickly, and then we haven't seen anything until 2022, our year right now, where it has really exploded. It actually has probably been here in the United States going back to 2017, but only in scattered cases, and we didn't recognize it. But this year, we're seeing a lot of cases. We're up to close to 3,000 cases here in the United States. How, how unusual is it to find a, a particular disease, such as monkeypox, or even COVID for that matter, that appears to have its roots in the animal kingdom to essentially cross species? I mean, is, is this a more recent phenomenon? Is this something that's been with us for a long time? We were just largely aware of it? Or, or is there an indication that somehow something from a DNA standpoint is, is changing so that it's able to jump species? Well, Epidemiologists call this spillover when the infection spills over from one animal to another. In this case, we're interested in from other animals to humans. And this has been a phenomenon that's occurred for for a long, long time with millennia. But we're seeing it much more often now. And the reason why we're seeing it much more often now is because there are so many human beings on this planet, and we're really encroaching upon parts of this planet that human beings didn't um, really get, get to very much. And so when, with the spillover that occurs when humans encroach on animal habitats, we start to see more cases. And that's what we're, we saw with SARS back in 2001. We see it with influenza, which is primarily a, a virus of birds, but other animals as well. And we saw it with MERS, which is 
um, from camels to humans in 2014. And then, of course, we saw it with SARS probably coming from uh, bats and maybe in what we call an intermediate host to human beings. So this spillover um, has been, while it's occurred for millennia, we're seeing it at an accelerated rate now because there's so many people on this planet in contact with animals. And I would add that it's so easy to get from one place on this planet to another place very quickly. Well, and, you know, I was just going to say, you know, largely that's also been a, a, a dynamic that's changed pretty significantly in the last two or three decades, that heretofore uh, travel was expensive. It was not all that common, particularly overseas, not to suggest that people never went to Italy or Paris. They certainly did. But uh, the degree to which we have people moving from continent to continent is now in the millions. And so what I would imagine that we're heretofore made Maybe uh, something like monkeypox might get discovered on the African continent and remain there, that the amount of global transportation suggesting people are able to be carriers, essentially, is probably very contributory to this, wouldn't it be? Absolutely. You're completely right about that. Um, You can get really just about anywhere on this planet in about 14 hours. Um, All infectious diseases have what's called an incubation period from the time you get infected to the time you become symptomatic. And if you had to sail across the ocean, um, the virus or bacteria would never get from one place to another. But today, just a few hours, you're across the ocean. Were there were were there outbreaks of these types of illnesses certainly a hundred years ago with the level of transportation that we have today? I would suspect that many of these cases, whether we're talking about monkeypox or COVID, absent inoculations would most assuredly mean significant increases in mortality rates. Uh, That said, fortunately, uh, we are in a period of time where medical science is able to go in, investigate, do the research, and come up with vaccines that, uh, if not altogether preventing a person from uh, becoming infected with something like smallpox, for example, or polio, at least it can significantly reduce the, um, the effects that it has for example, in the case of COVID. Um, I was particularly, I think, alarmed to hear recently, um, uh, Professor Schwartzberg, of the reemergence of polio. And here in the United States, where we were pretty much at a point of patting ourselves in the back, saying that, you know, from the initial discovery of the polio vaccine by Salk in the 1950s, we had pretty much eradicated polio, certainly from the United States and most of the developed world. Now, all of a sudden, that's showing back up on scene as well. And I have to wonder, is that largely because of the transportation ease that we were talking about? Or is that only partially contributory? And how many of these cases, if not all of them, can be directly related to people that, for whatever reason, have never been vaccinated for polio? The latter. It has really nothing, polio really has nothing to do with the transportation. It has to do with the fact that we've been able to eliminate polio from the United States and all of the Americas really, for, as you mentioned, for quite a while now. The only people who are getting polio now, essentially, are people who have elected not to get vaccinated or who haven't had the ability to get vaccinated. The case that you're mentioning in New York City is in a, was in an adult who's lived here a long time 
I believe, all his life and never got vaccinated. And unfortunately, in, in that community, there are quite a few people who haven't gotten vaccinated. And every case of paralytic polio that we see means that there's probably 99 other cases that didn't cause paralysis and went unrecognized. So this one case is a tragedy, but it represents also that there's a lot of infection with this virus going on here in the United States. And the only reason for it, the only reason for it is that people aren't vaccinated. So from your perspective, whether we're talking about, and we've had many discussions on this program related to COVID, uh, more recently our dialogue today surrounding monkeypox or the issue of polio, from from a healthcare perspective, as you're speaking to individuals, parents with children, what is your advice, Professor Schwartzberg, on, on any of these points? And, and, you know, as time goes on, there might be other infectious diseases added to this list, I suppose, as we're, you know, we've suddenly went from talking about none to at least three in uh, barely a window frame or time frame of, of uh, 24 months. From your perspective um, and, and from a public health um, consideration, what's your advice to folks listening? Well, really two things. One is, be sure to avail yourself of what medical science has given us. That is the vaccines to prevent so many diseases. A hundred years ago, parents had children and they knew that a certain number were gonna die from, from common infectious diseases. And those diseases we just don't see anymore because of vaccines. So please avail yourself of vaccines. The other point I wanted to make is that there are going to be more spillover infections. There are going to be more infections like COVID and monkeypox, and they're going to be coming, as we discussed, at an accelerated rate. We have to adequately support public health and world health to control these. We can't, we've been underfunding here in the United States, the U.S. public health system for decades, and we're now paying the price for that. And I think it's really important to underscore what Professor Schwartzberg is saying. Uh, Number one, to make sure that when you're getting information, you're getting it from reliable, educated, professional Sources, and I know I'm going to irritate some folks when I say this, but let me let me make it abundantly clear: Robert Kennedy Jr., maybe a nice guy, is not a public health expert. And when he goes on his rants against vaccinations, it's basically a lot of hot air and highly, dangerously so, misinformed. Alex Jones is not a public health official; he's not a doctor. So when you're taking advice from people like this, you run the risk as you ignore the public health safety warnings, as you ignore the science that's available to you, you put yourself and your family at increased risk. And while fortunately things like monkeypox are indeed treatable, we've already seen the horrific carnage in America uh, of the ramp-up period from the first discovery of COVID, uh, you know, long about uh, uh, late uh, 2019 into what ultimately became the loss of a million American lives. Many of those, sadly, early on, regretfully couldn't be prevented, but many also post the availability of the vaccination could have been 
prevented. And sadly, people just took information from really bad, misinformed sources. You're dealing with your health here. Now, if you don't care if you're dead tomorrow, your family's not going to be worried about missing you, then I guess you just can ignore the public health warnings. But for the rest of us, it would uh, serve us all well to take heed of what the experts are suggesting. Toward that end, uh, a final question for you this afternoon, Professor Schwartzberg, in relationship to monkeypox, particularly as we've seen uh, increase and spread in larger metropolitan areas, is there cause for concern for the general population yet? We understand that that intimate contact, skin-to-skin contact, seems to be sort of the, the easiest way in which it's being spread. So what, what, what groups should be most concerned and even potentially look at, at, at taking the vaccination? Yes. For the general public, there's not cause for alarm. The, you know, with COVID, you can catch it just by going in the grocery store. But with, with monkeypox, it requires really very close and usually prolonged intimate contact with another human being. Sometimes with, for example, the bedding that another human being with monkeypox was in, if you're in that same bed, are objects that that person may have held and you may hold for a long time. But it's mainly intimate contact with another human being. It doesn't transmit nearly as well as COVID does. So for the general public... You don't have to be alarmed when you go into a store or when you do things with other people or if you brush up against somebody when you're walking down the street. It's not that kind of disease. It is very difficult to transmit and requires prolonged intimate contact. Professor John Schwartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus, UC Berkeley, Professor Emerita Academy, the School of Public Health, Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology, and Chair of the Editorial Board of the UC Berkeley Health and Wellness Publications. Professor Schwartzberg, as always, we appreciate your time and uh, your kindness in educating us. 539. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We have been with heavy heart following the events that have been unfolding in the Ukraine since probably late February, early um, March, with the outbreak of the unprovoked attack on that sovereign nation by Russia. And, uh, and of course, for a season, there have been hopeful that either the Ukrainian military would be able to repel a largely unorganized Russian military. Or, at the very least, we would see a step up by the international community, be it NATO, even though Ukraine is not a member country, or be it the EU, or more broader still, the United Nations. And while there has been degrees of support offered, Ukraine has been largely left to fight and defend its own. The casualties continue to mount up, and who knows what the end game here is, other than perhaps the ultimate notion that Putin fancies himself, if, put it this way, if Gorbachev and Boris Yeltsin are the guys responsible for the collapse and dismantling of the Soviet Union, I think Putin has the fantasy in his head that he wants to go down in history as the guy that put the great empire back together again. As we talk about all of the political implications of this, and they are 
severe and, and, and ongoing, we don't want to miss the human side, the human tragedy of all of this. Real lives are being disrupted. Real lives are being lost. Millions of people have suddenly been displaced and become refugees. And at this juncture, at least within the short-term view ahead, there seems to be no relief, no end in sight. So what has it been like for people, particularly early on in this experience, to, to, to suffer through this horrific injustice, the worst war on the continent of Europe in 80 years? And um, sadly for the Ukrainian people, they were brutalized, horrifically so, by the Germans in World War II. Now they're being brutalized, horrifically so, yet once again, by the Russians in 2022. With some insights, our next guest, a New York Times best-selling author, uh, spent some time amongst the refugees early on in this conflict and even has a very... um, personal angle as to why this particular conflict is is weighing so heavily on his heart and mind. Kyle Duncan joins us, author of a new book called Hope for Ukraine, Stories of Grit and Grace from the Front Lines of War, newly released by Bethany House. And Kyle, thank you for taking time to be with us. Thank you, Craig, very much. It's a pleasure to be with your listeners and uh, just uh As I'm sitting here listening to your introduction, it it just uh, brings the sobriety of the situation back home again. It is a sobering situation. And, you know, sadly, there's been many of other things going on in the news that kind of pushes this out of the the headlines. Uh, You know, we will hear a story here and there. But, you know, as often in these sorts of tragedies, after a while, we sort of become numb to it. um, And yet the real story of the human toll uh, continues to grind on. And there are going to be aspects of life in Ukraine and for the Ukrainian people that will never return to some semblance of the old, you know, January of 2022 normalcy. That said, first, let's begin with your interest in this story and and what led you to travel there um, early on, spending time amongst many of the refugees in places like Poland, the western, extreme western portion of Ukraine, uh, not long after this conflict began back in March. Yeah, that's a that's a, a very potent question. I would say, you know, I've been following this for years, Craig. My wife and I, we have three biological daughters, but we actually adopted our son, our one and only son, from Ukraine in 2007. And um, ironically enough, he is from Mariupol, which, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, and I know you realize, is... Uh, you know, that was the place where the Avastol soldiers were held up underground at what was called the Ukrainian Alamo. Um, and uh, just, you know, it, 10 to ten to 20,000 people, civilians actually, have died in Mariupol. It's a very strategic port city that Putin's been kind of uh, greedily eyeing since the Donbass conflict broke out in 2014, even before that. So I've had a personal interest, you know, just having an adopted son who's Ukrainian, uh, and we've been following it for years, the whole conflict there. And so when the war broke out, we, um, I just felt so helpless, you know. And in prayer, I just sensed the Lord saying, you need to write about this. I have a background as a writer in publishing history. I've been in the publishing field for about 30 years. So I approached my co-author, Esther Federkevich, 
and she's also an industry pro. And, you know, Craig, all the tumblers fell into place. Uh, God did exactly what needed to happen, and within three days we had a book deal, which is pretty incredible. So that's the short, the short version of, of how I got into a place, you know, position to write this book. And in, in traveling there, you know, uh, you're going to refugee camps. It's a very fluid situation. It's difficult really to know what to expect. Give me your first mm-hmm. impressions as you, you, you made your way from the United States to uh, Poland and, and eventually uh, the western parts of the Ukraine. What, what mm-hmm. kind of a humanitarian scene were you met with? It was emotionally uh, overwhelming, a completely visceral experience. The first thing you, you see when, when you're on the Polish side and you drive up to the border area uh, is what I actually call in the book a corridor of hope. It's very interesting and very humbling to see it because the whole world has shown up for Ukrainian, the Ukrainian people. And you have, you know, the Operation Blessing and um, UNICEF and World Central Kitchen and all of these organizations, I mean, Christian uh, Israeli organizations, uh, the Red Cross, the Red Crescent, that in itself, Craig, was overwhelming to see people wanting, wanting to help and wanting to, to just reach out and do whatever possible to help Ukrainians as they were pouring over the border. Um, as, as you rightly pointed out, I think the number right now is closing in on 7 million that have fled. When I was there in uh, late March and early April, it, they were pro- the, the wait that I went through, because I actually crossed over on foot into the little village on the Ukrainian side. It took me about mm, 20 minutes to cross over, and it took me it took me nine hours to get back on foot uh, from the Ukrainian customs across, and finally when I was back into Poland. So it was a very intense situation, uh, and I was in line with people from Kharkiv who had just sort of been on an 18-hour bus ride from that out city, and most of the people I was around had just spent a month in bomb shelters. So it's kind of hard to wrap your brain around that. I'm not a war journalist, Craig, and uh, I'm a writer and a publishing guy. And so for me, it was quite overwhelming. Yeah, and, you know, for us in the West and as Americans, I mean, war is something that, unless you go back to 1812, has never been visited upon our continent. And Mm. so when we think of things like having to vacate one's home, go and seek shelter in a train station, an underground train station, or completely out of the area, maybe even out of your own country, uh, Mm. in order to save your own family. These are concepts that we've only seen and read about. we've, We've seen them in movies, we've read about these stories, but never witnessed firsthand, never experienced firsthand what this means. I would suspect for anybody eavesdropping on our conversation right now, if I said, I'm going to come to your house tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., I'm going to start a stopwatch, I'm going to give you five minutes to pack all of your valuables, everything that matters to you in life, and then you must vacate your premises, and I'm going to take you to a 
unknown location where you will then have to basically be uprooted and begin living for a protracted period of time. You may or may not know anyone there. You may or may not even speak the language there. If I said that to our listeners, Kyle, I think most people... Their, their eyes would cross over and say, there's absolutely no way. I could never imagine having to face something like that. And yet that's the reality for the Ukrainian people today. And the last count was that we were looking at refugee counts of well over two million people displaced. Yeah, it's it's um, it really it's impossible, really. Right. For us to wrap our arms around that fact that you just so eloquently stated. Uh, and so so sitting there. You know, talking to people, and I'm talking to, uh, you know, not to stereotype because there weren't. The, the, I was talking, uh, standing next to a woman. I remember, I she kind of looked like Angelina Jolie. So she, you know, she had a, she was dressed to the nine. She had a Louis Vuitton bag, you know, and she's got her two dogs with her, a backpack, and a rolling suitcase. And you know, I didn't get a chance to actually speak with her. But I spoke with people around her. I spoke, I talked to, you know, a software engineer with his family uh, who, you know, said, oh, we had a nice flat, two cars. Yeah. And, and here we are, you know. And so it's it's surreal, you know, to to even think about. And um, many of the stories in the book kind of delve into that juxtaposition that you're talking about, Craig. It's. It's something that they, hopefully we never have to experience here in the United States. Uh, and hopefully um, it, it will be ending soon. Um, that may be wishful thinking on my part, but, you know, who knows uh, the timetable for, for how long this, this horror show is going to continue. With that said, take a moment, if you would. We've, we've talked about just that, the horror show angle of all of this. And yet, as is often the case, back quietly behind the scenes, um, while it might seem by reading the, the news stories or watching watching the news that God has completely and utterly abandoned everyone there, your firsthand experience suggests otherwise. Give us an example mm-hmm. or two here. Well, first of all, the people themselves, and I just to clarify, the stories that I was able to garner uh, some of them, were, yeah, were on the ground in Poland from refugees that had fled. Um, others, of course, you know, were from Zoom or through Telegram, which is the, the app of choice in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, to the T, what people said was, you know, in essence, we're never going to give up. It was very much a Churchillian, <laughs> that's a word, a Winston Churchill, you know, kind of just moxie and just this grit and that impressed me but on top of that was you know even if russia were to take every single house in this nation this will always be our home and we will fight every man woman and child for every single house here so it was it was completely humbling to hear that kind of dedication literally to to give up really you know to sacrifice one's life for one's country, which is something, you know, again, I mean, we haven't had to think about that here in the United States, to your point, for a couple of centuries, at least 150 years since probably the Civil War, I would argue, at least on our own soil. So, 
The new book that you've written, Hope for Ukraine, Stories of Grit and Grace from the Front Lines of War, what's the big takeaway in terms of what you want your your readers to experience and remember the most? Two parts. One is that um, there is a human side to every tragedy. And my goal, what I felt my assignment was, that God put on my heart and my co-author, Esther Federkevich, who, by the way, is third-generation Ukrainian, and some of the stories in the book have to do with her relatives. So two parts. One is uh, to open a window for Americans and others around the world to uh, see a glimpse of, of the lives of people, just like you and I, who have been affected by the most, uh, the lar- at least the largest, and you could argue the most devastating land war in Europe for, for eight, uh, eight decades. And the second part of that, Craig, is that there actually is hope, and that, that the hope we talk about is both a noun and a verb. Um, you know, we do need to hope for peace, but also there is hope, because we, we serve a God who is a hope giver. And so the message here, yes, the, some of the stories are extremely sad and talk about lost loved ones and, and utter hell that people have gone through and are still going through. But many of the stories were really without me fabricating it or going out of my way to try to gather these kind of stories. There are so many stories of the church in Ukraine rising up. But beyond that, just the common citizens, um, I have I have stories in their interviews, you know, interviews, you know, people of all faiths, Muslims, Jews as well. So it's really about uh, the hope that we have in our creator in spite of uh, the utter evil is the word I would use that's being perpetrated upon upon the Ukrainian people. Yeah, utter evil is a good word, and to keep them in both our thoughts and in our prayers, vitally important. And this book will help do that and give you a perspective on the human side of this tragedy that uh, oftentimes really doesn't come through as you're listening to the news or reading statistics on the newspaper. The book is called Hope for Ukraine, Stories of Grit and Grace from the Front Lines of War. It's newly published by Bethany House. You'll find it at Christian bookstores across the Bay Area, as well as through, um, quite easily, Amazon.com. Our thanks to Kyle Duncan, author of the new book, Hope for Ukraine, for providing those those insights. Kyle, thanks so much for your time today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.